Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to the podcast Be Real, where we reappraise old movies and review new movies. Tonight's show will be doing a bit of both. My name is Chance Solom Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And Noah, which one of us do you think would be better at falling into a coma? Which one do you think would be better at hosting the show in the other stead? Do I still get a voiceover if I'm in the coma? <laughs> what do you plan to use your voiceover for? To, only to make it look me? like you did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh i get it i get it um no i just want to also... hang out with big rod and nancy and then when you wake up you love me right or have no idea who you are right because in fact we'd never do each other <laughs> and now we've covered all three movies tonight in bits and we've yet to say the names of them i think we could do our own coma pod where like i go into a coma and i'm kind of like wishy-washy on the whole like maybe podcast slash our friendship or something and i mm. come out of it and there's a montage where i'm like figuring out our friendship through listening to 50 some odd episodes of us talk about movies <laughs> and that's how i yeah. like get over the amnesia buddy before we get into these coma movies that we've uh, so delicately foreshadowed why don't we uh, visit our ethos corner real quick what have you been doing this week Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. I just watched Game of Thrones. You haven't seen it yet, so... Oh, no. I'm a little tell hyped me, up on tell that. Tell me about it in uncertain terms. And I'm going to tell you, there's a casting decision this week that is indefensible. It is the most cheesy, like, wink at the audience ever, and I fucking hate it. And Game of Thrones better pick up next week, or I'm done with it. Ask me what I did this weekend. Chance, what did you do this weekend? I went up to my aunt's house in Ocean Shores, Washington, and it was mostly a quiet time spent with people 50 years my senior, drinking their red wine and eating their steak. But on the night of Friday when we rolled into town, we were told to like meet up with the crew at the Elks Lodge, which is kind of like a legion hall, but there's like a giant elk head that's so big you're not sure if it's from a real animal or not. And there they do karaoke for like hours and hours and hours. And I was encouraged over and over again to do it. I said, no, no, thank you. No, no, thank you. Finally, after trying this like local drink they had, like a lemon, some kind of lemon vodka thing, <laughs> which sounds like the right drink to, to get one of on stage for karaoke. I said, if Sarah, my girlfriend and my aunt would come up and sing what they profess to be their favorite song in existence, Brandy by Looking Glass, that we could all go up together. And we did all go up together and they like, didn't even put the mics near their faces. And I just had to go. How'd you do? I think I did okay. The song kind of sings itself about, you know, how our eyes could steal a sailor from the sea, but they don't because the sea is there. You know this song? I don't know this song. Really? The sailors say, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my love, and my lady is the sea. <laughs> you don't know this song? Uh, I can't say that I do. Anyway, that's what I did. And I guess my, other than my feelings about Game of Thrones, my sort of um, look into my my ethos here is the the guest on the podcast. Uh, So in my other life, I am a literary agent uh, representing authors. You Uh, consider this one of your lives? This is my main life chance, and if you're not, I'm going to be heartbroken. If this is not one of your lives, I'm heartbroken. In my other life, I'm a literary agent, and I represent fiction and nonfiction writers. Um, and one of them is 
a good friend of mine, Nick White, who just wrote a book that came out uh, last month. And he came on. Well, we saw he was in town to do the the leg of his the New York leg of his his book launch tour. Yeah, did a wonderful reading up in um, book culture up on Columbus on the Upper West Side. And before that, just to sort of kill time, before he was set to be at this bookstore, we went to see The Big Sick. So it was fun seeing it with him, and also it was fun sort of. Because when you do these book tours, you read a little bit and then like people ask you questions. And I sort of asked him some questions about how he feels about, you know, portraying real things, you know, in his book that's that's been fictionalized slightly. And we found there was a lot of overlap with our conversation after seeing The Big Sick. So our conversation is uh, is to come later. Before we get to your chat with Nick, should we uh, synopsize and maybe get like a third of the way into the big sick? Sure. Well, the as you said, Chance, the genre this week... No, you didn't say it, did you? We talked about it, both of us, for the so long. The genre is the coma pod. <laughs> uh-huh. The coma picture, in which a main character in the movie, for the majority of the movie, is in a coma, and this coma is like the, the narrative device. It is the plot of yeah. the... The person being in a coma is the plot of the, all three of these movies. Yep. So they are, uh, and we'll do it in this order, is the most recent uh, Big Sick, which is just coming out. It's been out in New York for a couple of weeks, but I think it's doing a, a national release next week, this week. It just opened this past Friday nationally. Great. And then we'll do the classic 90s rom-com While You Were Sleeping, Sandra Bullock, Bill Pullman. We can debate its classic hood, but keep going. I think it's like sort of like, People seem to know while you were sleeping. Like when they I sort do. of mentioned it offhand this week as I was thinking about it, like people know this movie, even if they don't know, like even if they maybe haven't seen it, they've like seen parts of it. Yeah. And they like know the basic setup of it. Right. Um, and then out of nowhere, actually Nick suggested this was doing reversal of fortune, which I had only like heard of, but I really didn't know what it was about. I knew vaguely that it was based on, it's like a John Grisham-y kind of thing where it's like based on a book a lawyer wrote. Mm -hmm. And that's basically all I knew about it. And it turns out that it is a movie about this guy who may or may not have been wrongly accused and convicted of attempting to kill his wife, who is in a coma. The thing I think is interesting about all these movies is that like, Having a main character in a coma is an incredible obstacle to try and overcome as a movie. Is right. it not? You have a black <laughs> hole in the middle of your movie. And they're all A-list actors, like, cast in the coma role. So I'm a- not certain Peter Gallagher is an A-list actor. But, like, Peter Gallagher, like, is, he's a known actor. It's not like, yeah. let's just get some, like, body off the street. I mean, he's right. more famous as... I would say then Bill Pullman was at the time of this movie. Mm, okay. But yeah, but you, but you have like a decent actor. You have to pay someone like a decent acting salary here to get them to like lay in a bed and yeah. m- not move at all and look like they're dead and like have a lot of medical equipment attached to them. And then either like when they come out of the coma before they're in the coma or just like flashbacks to when they weren't in the coma. In the same way these movies all lend themselves to, like, interesting levels of, like, unreliability from narrators and protagonists. Yeah. You know, how well do you know the person who, like, can't speak for themselves? Right. And I think that's a good segue into the first movie we're going to talk about, which is The Big Sick. Um, Kumail Nanjani and his wife. His real. This is a true story. Right. She, while they were dating, they like had a big fight and then like she went into a coma and then he had to like figure out like what they were to each other because he didn't know if they were together or not together. And she was in a coma and then he had to like deal with her parents and then she comes out of the coma and then spoiler alert, because they're married now, they get married. They do indeed. And they're together at the end. Um, but talking about that thing of like perspective and like sort of whose truth is it? It's just like a weird thing to think about uh, with this movie going into like Kumail Nanjani and his, his wife, uh, Emily, Emily V. Gordon, Emily V. Gordon. Like they wrote the script together, but like Kumail was the only one who was awake during like most of it, like as they recount it. 
before we do go any deeper, should we say that uh, Emily is played by Zoe Kazan? Mm-hmm. Uh, her parents, who he uh, meets and has, you know, an hour ten worth of interaction with, are played by Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. Uh, and at the same time, the the major conflict is that uh, Kumail's Pakistani American family uh, really wants him to marry a Pakistani Muslim woman, and he is in love with Emily. They've, well, they want to seen... like arrange a marriage for him. Right. Yes. And so they keep sort of, yeah, you and you and Nick talk about this, but this sort of like, it's arranged, but it's like loose, right? It's sort of like a residential speed dating thing that has apparently been going on for like years, right? Well, yeah, it's sort of like Pakistani okay Cupid or whatever. Sure. Yeah. It's, but like, it's not an app setting you up on these dates. It's your parents. And if they, if they hit it, you know, you hit it off with this person, you want to go forward. Like, great. They're already like some like people that your parents you know, feel strongly about. And so the the fight that you alluded to in the movie is portrayed as, uh, for dramatizing purposes, a breakup, which is right. that uh, uh, Kumail has not told Emily that his family is insistent uh, on him marrying a Pakistani woman, and he also has not told them that he's been in a really seemingly charming, successful relationship with this uh, white American woman for months. So. Right. <clears throat> yes, that drives them apart, and then the coma brings them back together. At least yes. geographically. Well, it it brings it. Yeah, it brings it in proximity. They're closer together, but uh-huh. that's the thing. Like Zoe Kazan is then not. It, she's been in the movie like very solidly for like twenty five, thirty minutes, and then she abruptly disappears. Sure. And you only see her as sort of like establishing hotel or uh, hospital room shots but then most of the movie is ray romano holly hunter and kumail nanjani just sort of going out and doing their thing so why don't we throw over to my interview with nick white um and like i said he's one of my writers his book how to survive a summer just came out from blue rider press so i hope you enjoy the interview and uh please if you get a chance pick up his book give it a read see what you think would love to hear from you as well I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl? Hey, you can't look like you and me, a white girl. It's okay. We hate terrorists. I wonder who that could be. I'm guessing it's a young, single Pakistani woman. This is Zubeda. For your files? Your X-Files? That's your favorite show, huh? <laughs> the truth is out there. <laughs> so I'm here with author, professor, uh, intellectual Nick White. Uh, How's it going? It's going great. Where are you? Where are you calling in from, Nick? I am currently in my bedroom in Columbus, Ohio. So our connection sort of leads us to why we're talking today, uh, which is sort of twofold. One, when you were doing the New York leg of your book tour, you and I took a break from the madness and went to see The Big Sick. That we did. Was that the first movie we've ever seen together? Well, we remember at AWP, we used to, we watched a couple movies on my laptop, but this is, I think, the first time we'd been to the theater together. Yeah, we were out in public, so we couldn't like cuddle up on the bed. So. Yeah. Well, we I cuddled up on you a little bit when the movie got a little scary, when I wasn't That's sure true. if she was going to make true. it or not. That's true. But yeah, so that was that was a fun thing. And then the other thing, too, which I thought is an interesting reason to bring you onto the podcast is The Big Sick, as you know, and as I think the sort of the buzz around the film is, uh, is based on a true story. And I wanted to talk to you a bit since your book sort of like, you know, is accessing this world through the lens of like semi-autobiographical right. fiction. It uses autobiography from as the jumping off point, which mm-hmm. I think, I think, um, this movie does as well. Um, it was really interesting hearing, uh, the Terry gross interview, how they, how they twisted and turned things to make it into a movie. Um, and, uh, we can get into this, but like a couple of, a couple of the decisions I was, I was really, happy about and then uh, then just hearing Kamal talk especially about his parents in the interview I almost felt like an armchair like director or mm-hmm. screenplay writer where I was yelling in the to the radio my god why didn't you include that that would have been so much so much more interesting if you would have included this and I think maybe it probably boiled down to a lot of other constraints as such as like time and 
editing and that thing, but uh, sure. I think it was interesting too that he like kind of throws them under the bus a little. His parents, who like maybe were not as like, there's this climactic scene in the movie where the mother and father come to his apartment, which I think is just a fabrication of the screenplay. Right. Um, But then they like blow up at him and say like you're you're out of the family. Well, yeah, I think I think the movie misses an opportunity, which the life story does not, which him talking to Terry Gross doesn't. When he mentioned in the interview that, you know, his parents were quite concerned for Emily when she was in the coma, you right. know, and that was and they would come to the hospital and ask about her. And then after she was sort of in the clear, that's when the anger and the questioning happened. And so I was just more curious about all of them interacting with one another and his parents with Emily's parents in the hospital. Like that just seems like that would be rife for um, interesting sort of things and could sort of like make, could do a lot of work in making the parents perhaps more complex. They do that a little at the end of the movie, which spoiler, um, when he's leaving for New York and the mom is sitting in the car and she won't even get out to look at him, but she still sort of made him his favorite dish. And his father goes out there and gives it to him. And um, he's like, you're not our son anymore. We don't want to speak to you, but please, when you get to New York, text us and let us know. That's sort of the movie indicating, I think, that their relationship is going is sort of um, strained right now, but it's going to be okay. And I, I don't know. I... Maybe I'm just greedy, but I would have liked more, perhaps. And I guess my question for you, talking about like what you saw as maybe a, a misstep of the movie, like as a writer yourself, there's the temptation when you're portraying your family to maybe like either either over dramatize it or sort of under dramatize it. But where do you like when you're writing about characters that like you grew up with, like how do you sort of navigate that? I think it's I think there's no sort of easy answer I wish there was some sort of like magic formula but I think it's I think it's more of a case-by-case basis and that's just very unsatisfying but I think characters whether or not they're based on real people or just completely a figment of the author's imagination you want to show their humanity on the page in some way, even if it's just sort of like little glimmers of it on the edges of the page. And did you see that in the screenplay here? I definitely did towards the end with the parents. Um, But also, I found a lot of humanity, a lot of interesting sort of work being going on between Kumail and... Holly Hunter and uh, Ray Romano. Those two parents' unwillingness at first, especially the mom, the Holly Hunter character, to let Kamel off the hook Mm -hmm. goes a long way to showing how he has in some ways misled his family. Like He never at any point tells his family, no, this is not what I want just as he never tells Emily, this is what my parents want, and I'm trying to like negotiate this. So he's sort of stuck in between two worlds. And I think that's probably the most interesting part of the movie, and, his, and the ability for this like situation to sort of like add pressure to that and force him to kind of make a decision, I think is the most successful part, and sort of really develops his character and develops Emily's parents in really interesting and nuanced ways. That's interesting. And I think it's interesting too, because you have two sets of parents who sort of play in this space of stereotypically very conservative backgrounds, Mm -hmm. like Kumail's being his, having his Pakistani parents and then Emily having her parents who are from what, North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, North Carolina. So tell me how you feel, at least, as an expert on, like, drawing Southern families. Well, all Southern families, but also, like, this idea of, like, living in the closet. And he said this really interesting thing on the Fresh Air interview where he said, um, when you don't make a decision, 
you are in your set you are in it it is in itself making a decision because you're like constantly like misleading people and you're sort of in this constant process of like retreating from who you really are and I found that to be interesting and then like that coming up to answer your question about Holly Hunter and Ray Romano how they use their story First of all, I think I, I told you this in an email. It's really interesting and something I have never seen portrayed on movies before where the Southern, the person from the South, the Holly Hunter character, is the one who's telling people to be more open-minded. It's like, right. you know, like the white Southern woman is like saying, but, but I thought that is such like an interesting nuanced character where when she shares her experience with him, that when he when she first brought or when she first started dating Ray Romano how her family reacted you know when you were in New York when we saw this movie talking to Garrett Conley about you know his sort of life and this this sort of false self that he created and I wondered like when you saw this movie and just like thinking about the theme of your book and the theme of Boy Erased and you know did you sort of identify with Totally. I totally identified with it. It's this idea of you're, you're sort of in a no-win situation where if you follow the path that your parents want for you. My parents, if they had their druthers, they would have wanted me to be straight, marry a woman, um, give them grandchildren, you know. And if I lived that life, I would be living a lie. I would probably make the poor woman I married miserable. I would be miserable. Um, and so, but on the other side, living the life I want, having a long-term relationship with a man will, f- will hurt them or will potentially hurt them. And that's, that seems to be the same dynamic that's going on with Kamel and his parents in this movie. He adds, an, he adds another... Uh, nuance to this, another sort of point of intersectionality in the fact that his parents are immigrated here from Pakistan. And he's he immigrated here from Pakistan, and so they gave up a lot. They want to hold on to their identity, and they want to hold on to their culture. And a part of that is, you know, arranging a marriage. And it's something that's very important to them, and he understands that. And by him sort of bucking with that, he feels a lot of guilt. So we had talked a little bit about this, like walking out of the theater afterwards, but the idea of, I mean, it's sort of the conceit of this podcast, at least the genre of it, is that coma is either bringing people together or like acting as a thing where people totally like misunderstand who the person is who's asleep and there's even like the, I mean, there's, of course, uh, While You Were Sleeping and uh, Reversal of Fortune, which Chance and I will get into. But there's also like that idea of, I mean, sort of the, not to spoil anything, but the, I guess the message of uh, While You Were Sleeping was that like the, anything you sort of fantasized about this person in a coma is like probably not really true. And right. that she's not meant to be with that person. And there's even like that funny, have you seen that Friends episode where like Phoebe, Phoebe and Monica sort of fight over this guy that they take to the hospital? Oh, yeah. Because he's like very yeah. handsome and they like bring him gifts but, and like imagine this personality he has. Then he wakes up and he's like kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. Media or movies or television has set this idea up in my mind that if you've developed too close of a relationship with someone in a coma, you like probably shouldn't be with them in the end. I think the thing that saves this movie as opposed to while you were sleeping was that they had a pre-existing relationship beforehand. Sure. Um, one thing I know from experience is that anytime you, it seems like when you experience a medical crisis within a relationship, it either brings you together or throws you apart. I think that's fair. Um, when I was... I think it was maybe two years ago. I'm a diabetic and I was put in ICU in Boston when I was visiting my partner. I had diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, and I was put in the ICU for three days. And um, I had like three drips. It was a mess. Um, and my partner Josh like really uh, stepped up and helped me through that. And it really... 
it really sort of deepened our relationship to one another because of this medical crisis that I experienced. But of course, I was conscious the whole time. Right. So, I mean, on the other side of that, too, just to sort of make your point, you know, um, I don't know, you know this about me, right? That I had Hodgkin's when I was 23. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was in a pretty serious relationship. And halfway through my my treatment, the GF was just like, you know, I'll see you. Oh, Noah. So. But so maybe I'm coming. But maybe that informs my read of this movie. And mine too. Mine too. Yeah. Is that like I don't want them to be together because like I didn't get to get the girl after my like medical thing, but you got the boy after yours. So. Yeah. 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 Also, I think that you kind of have a crush on Kumel. That's very true. That is very true. He and I would have had even a bigger crush on him. Had, I, I recommend all the viewers if they when they watch this to definitely stick around for the credit scenes when he has like these mammoth sideburns. Oh yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, like I would have had if he would have like gone back to those OG sideburns for this movie, I would have been even more in the tank for him. But yeah, I think he's dreamy. I think he's <laughs> sweet. I think he has. I, I like. I think he has a very sort of soft-spoken, thoughtful way of speaking. He's a dreamboat. He's a complete dreamboat, and I like the fact that um, I like the fact that he's being portrayed as someone worthy of sexual desire. I think that's a huge step forward. Are we going to rate this movie? I'll let you rate it. I'll save my rating for when Chance and I record. But what did I'm you gonna, think? I'm going to give it a good, good. I could give it a good, good, and I think it's going to get an Oscar nomination for best screenplay. And I think it has the potential of getting an Oscar nomination for Holly Hunter for Best Supporting Actress. Great. And let me give you 30 seconds to shamelessly plug your book and whatever else you oh, want please. to talk about. Like there's like two more months left of the summer. I think my book makes a perfect summer read. Um, centers around a guy trying to deal with being gay and from Mississippi and surviving a gay to straight conversion camp. Um, It's dark, but it's also funny. It deals with queer culture. Um, It has some laughs, has a couple kinky sex scenes. Um, It'll be a good friend for you while you're um, out there on the beach or, um, or, over your lunch break in your air-conditioned office, wherever you may be. So please, uh, check check me out. And that's How to Survive a Summer. How to Survive a Summer with Blue Rider Press, a novel by Nick White. Uh, 9-11. I've always wanted to have a conversation with people. You've never talked to people about 9-11? I'm still staying. Do anything? Any Paula games? No, I've never. You play. You can't rhyme it. You try to find a word that nobody can rhyme. Okay. And Stonehenge. Then... Yeah. See, you would win. Yeah. What a lovely, intelligent human being that Nick White, and a great Love podcast him. guest. Absolutely. I'm more interested in hearing actually what you have to say about this movie than what I think, because I think it's a really tender, charming, well acted movie that I wrote about and really liked but it seemed to me that you had more issues with it than i did so i'd rather hear those and try to rebut them a little bit don't you feel like the moral of this movie is not that they should get together in the end the moral of this movie is he should take the things he learned from dealing with these two other parents and applying it to his own family that's an interesting point that does seem braver and weirder that also just seems really unlikely, though, doesn't it? I think that what that holds this movie, movie... Well, I think what holds this movie back, unfortunately, is the fact that it's based on a true story. You know, and that's my problem with it, is it's so, like, neatly sewn up at the end. Like, of course they get together, and we know it the whole time, so the movie has this almost obligation to, like, bring them as far apart as possible, mm-hmm. to then only bring them back together to make it even seem more like, whoa, they did it. But I feel like all... For me, all romantic comedies like are going up this ramp of obstacles, right? Like, can these people be together? There's all these things in the way. No, they shouldn't. And at the end, they all jump, you know? And it's like, does does the charisma, does the 
romance portrayed on screen between these two people? Will it get us through the leap of logic? And this one has a pretty big leap of logic in the coma. I admit that. But I think the attention to detail among the other people and also what what a seemingly like naturally good relationship they had other than the fact that like they were hiding like whether this was feasible going forward i think it really helps that leap of logic i mean she has her very unlikely moment where she's like oh you became a better person while i was asleep well guess what i was asleep and then it has to jump over that still but i i don't know i think it's got a lot of steam power see this is what I almost have problems with in like of Apatow male characters. And maybe the problem that I had with Nanjani in this one is the fact that like he doesn't really change. Like that's not the conflict of the movie is him to like come of age or change. And just like many Apatow male protagonists of the past, he doesn't change. He just convinces the people around him that he doesn't need to. But I would argue, one, you have the great line where his dad talks to him about, like, the American dream is not do whatever you want. That's not what that means. And it seemed to me like he took that to heart. And But also, I don't think Kumail is as inherently flawed as a Seth Rogen, train wreck Amy Schumer, uh, funny people Adam Sandler. He seems like a very kind of, like, happy, healthy, communicative guy who just cannot reconcile this cultural crevasse that he's stuck in but that's the thing like he doesn't learn that lesson he like still moves to new york to become a comedian he still like impulsively like marries the girl who he had an emotional like experience adjacent to like it doesn't feel like he really learned a whole lot you know he feels sort of like i mean he feels sort of to me like the character from 40 year old virgin where he has sort of like these people around him and they're like, live this way. And then other people are like, live this other way. And then ultimately when he just accepts the way he's already living, the one he's supposedly like embarrassed about people accept him or they don't, but he gets the girl and moves forward. And instead of being from Pakistan and having these sort of like rigid social constructs in that one, it's like him being a virgin and not wanting people to know about it, but it's the same principle, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know, man. The Kumail character really works for me because he, he, I don't know, I think he has this thing that a lot of people aspire to, which is that he's just very good at talking. He can, yes, talk his way out of things, but he can also explain his way through things and talk to other people. Um, and I think that's part of what makes this sort of inherently like likable comedic presence. Oh, sure. Like a really good, like, he's a good actor. rom-com figure. Yeah, they're really good together. I also think Zoe Kazan is, I mean, Zoe Kazan's, pretty much always good in movies, I think. Yeah, and she's very um, good in this particular role, so much so that we almost thought about doing a romantic comedies with Zoe Kazan episode. That's true. But didn't you think that Holly Hunter and Ray Romano were also just, like, spectacular? Oh, and what a... Yes, and what a combination of the two of them. Because both of them have that palpable goodness to them, right, as actors. Yes. But he's such a, like, soggy, wet blanket, and she's, like, a firecracker still. She's still, like, that has that Raising Arizona energy. We're yeah. just going to like snap, snap at Nick Cage or Ray Romano. Right. They're so That's, great. Yes. It's very good casting. It's a very well-made movie. Like I said, it's a vanity project with like a huge sort of pedigree to it. Um, you seem like you, you, you're rooting for this movie. And I was kind of like not rooting for this movie. Because mm-hmm. like the idea of it sort of annoys me. Um, but I think it might be – I think it might be – despite all my prodding at it, like not as bad as I say. Yeah. I mean, it also is really funny. Didn't you think so? Didn't you laugh It's hysterically funny. Yeah. I love when Ray Romano, it was such a, it was such a, like the ideal dad moment where he's talking about the internet or Kumail's talking about the internet. He's like, that's why I don't go on the internet. You go on the internet. They don't even like Forrest Gump. Friggin' best movie ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, the 9-11 bit that was in the trailer is a great bit. You <laughs> haven't talked to anybody about 9-11? <laughs> oh, I like the line even further where he says, like, well, how do you feel about 9-11? He goes, we lost, like, 16 of our best guys that day. <laughs> and it was just, like, that's such a funny, like, good for, good for them for not putting that in the trailer, but still, like, a, still like a good line. The 30 minutes they do have together, to me, are very convincing. Sure. When she's got the the bit about, which I won't spoil because it's a good bit about wanting to go to the diner in the middle of the night. Oh, when he tries to bit. make her watch Abominable Dr. Fibes, and she's just like, I oh, made God. you watch that once, didn't I? 
oh, and I think I responded the same as Zoe. But when she's like, oh, yeah, sure, I love it when men test me on my taste. <laughs> it's a really good line. Yeah, it's a really good relationship in there. I just think the idea is creepy. That's the only reason I, don't, I like I'm poking at this movie more than it, it should be poked at. My my biggest compliment for this movie is just that it's it's really generous with its like how with its empathy and how it thinks about these side characters. You and Nick talk about the, you know, when it when we go home with Kumail giving the the last of the would be brides like a ride back, and she's just like, I'm just trying to do this. Like that's an extremely generous moment for this movie to have. That nor that ninety percent of the time I think would just like chalk that up to a laugh parade and we'd never hear from any of those women again. Yeah. We don't hear about like the backstory of any, like the wedding crasher women. No, you know? exactly. hundred percent. Like it could have been a very misogynistic sort of montage, but like it, it, the movie is kind and it like has, it has a, a generosity of spirit to it. I will, I will grant you that chance. Can we turn toward a rating here? I would love nothing more. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good, good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good, good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad, bad is easy, too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good, bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good, bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. So yeah, it's a good good for me, man. I think, like I said, I was just really impressed with the thoroughness of the writing, sort of like a would-be vanity project that feels like it was sort of touched by Apatow and Showalter and Gordon and Nanjiani and these other comi- or these other uh, acting presences that you know and like that are that really come with a heart, and that's Haunt- Hunter and Romano. Um, and I think, like, yeah, if it has to, like, kind of clunkily resolve itself at the end... Like that's the movie, and it's if if the rom com is indeed a genre picture, like it has conventions, and it's got to get its way to that convention. I think the ride there is good, good for me. Yeah, as much as I want to disagree with you, um, I won't. I think it's a good, good. Um, I think even if you poke at it pretty hard, it sort of comes back. Yeah, you know, it hard to put a hole in this one. So yeah, um, I'm convinced. Well, can we talk about a couple of movies where maybe the coma presents even more of a problem? Yeah. You, where you want to start? While you were sleeping? Yeah, 1995, while you were sleeping. When you used to surf the cable sort of void instead of surfing Netflix, like some channel always had while you were sleeping playing at some hour of the day. Oh, yeah. I definitely watched it on WGN because it's a Chicago movie. Right. And you know good things are afoot when you say a, see a film by John Turtletaub in the uh, <laughs> the opening credits. We were texting about John Turtletaub over the weekend. I think that John Turtletaub's resume is surprisingly long for how mediocre it is. And Noah pointed out some highlights, yes. There's Cool Runnings. There is The First National Treasure. But more recently, there is Last Vegas. There is The Sorcerer's Apprentice. There's National Treasure 2. <laughs> There's Phenomenon a little further back there. <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> um, I think that, well, as I was saying, you said he was like a, what, a low 250 hitter? Yeah, he hits like 250 and 10 homers a year for like 20 years. Yeah, he's like, he's just your utility guy. He's your uh, Enrique Wilson, you know? Sure. <laughs> he's just bouncing around that AL. 
other than Sean Bean like perving out over gold and National Treasure, these are just movies where like people stand in a room and talk to each other and get a little emotional, right? So while you were sleeping, if you've heard of this movie, it's because you know the premise of this movie. It's uh, Sandra Bullock is a, uh, a teller at the for the L in Chicago, the train, and every day she leads sort of like this lonely existence. She lives alone with her cat, it, I, which I cannot believe is actually a cliche that appears in this movie, but it does. Um, in a big way. <laughs> cats, just, cats just sort of come to her. And every day uh, she watches handsome heavily browed Peter Gallagher run by in his long Yeah, she watches coat. A, two eyebrows wearing a trench coat, like, <laughs> scoot by every day, and she's in love with this form. Yep. Until, what is it, Christmas Eve? Yeah. Christmas Eve, he says Merry Christmas to her, and, like, finally she gets a chance to say something to him, but she, she chickens out, and she blows, she blows it, it. yeah. And he, like, goes onto the platform. She's like, oh, should I, like, say something? Like, I can't, like, leave here. Like, what do I do? And uh, some street youths come out of the woodwork and try to rob him. And they ended up pushing him onto the tracks where he hits his head, mm-hmm. knocked unconscious. Sandra Bullock has to go save him. And she saves him. They're at the hospital together. And because she's sad and lonely... And she like wants to see how the guy's doing because she feels they have this relationship which they do not. Yep. She she vocalizes the fr- like something to the effect of like I was going to marry that guy. That's right. And a nurse overhears her say this and just assumes that she meant it literally and that she's the fiance. So she like goes with him into like the hospital processing and mean and in this hullabaloo, she ends up meeting his family and being told by like the people at the hospital that she's the new fiance. And then everything sort of like spirals out of control. The hijinks ensue. For Lucy, loneliness was a way of life. Joe Jr. still single. Yeah, it's shocker. But the moment she saw Peter, she became a believer in love at first sight. He was perfect. Then fate stepped in. Now she's part of his life. He's in a coma. Definitely hijinks ensue. It is an extremely. It'd be hard to come up with a more farcical premise than that, wouldn't it? Well, the best part about this movie is also the worst part about this movie because it's such an easy movie to be like. What if you got mistaken for somebody's fiance when they were in a coma and you could sort of like get away with it, kind of thing? Yeah, it's like a, it's a good premise for a, a movie, but it's also like a really bad premise for a movie because that's just the that's just like the lead up to it. That's not even the movie. So you need to then have a totally separate narrative that needs to resolve itself. That's true, because. So this movie ends up not really even being about the premise while totally confined to the premise. <laughs> a good diagnosis, I think, Doctor. Um, yeah, it like weirdly tries to play it straight for having like that ridiculous of a premise. We already know, or we know now, they didn't know at the time, We've seen Sandra Bullock in one of the great rom-com farces of our day, Miss Congeniality, and she's incredible in it. But this movie is, this movie is, the problem with how straight it plays it is it opens the door for me to look at the movie as kind of creepy. Like, you could definitely, like, recut, like, the scenes on YouTube with, like, some Hans Zimmer music, and it's, like, a movie about, like, this weird loner woman who convinces this idiot family that yeah. like she you loves... cut it differently and like give it like a less bullshit score and it's like fear just call it like sleep <laughs> yeah or um, like wow you were sleeping <laughs> but uh-huh. yeah no that's totally right and if they if they cast anyone even like a touch more like severe than sandra bullock who's just like i mean on a scale of like one to like marshmallow yeah. Like, she's a pretty, like, warm presence on the screen. On a scale of Marshmallow to Glenn Close, she's very close to Marshmallow. It doesn't give her anything to do acting-wise. It's true. Like, she's um, sad and alone at the beginning, and then she's just, like, sad and alone with, like, a 
delusion slash like something to keep her busy. There's a premise to keep her busy, but it doesn't require her going anywhere like emotionally. For a, a soundtrack that is all like dun, 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 mischief music, it gives her no mischief. No, she is no mischief. And she's never that crafty, which no. I found kind of unfortunate. I think like giving her like a little bit more agency like would have been a nice thing. But instead, it's just like her whispering. I don't like I got mixed up in this and I don't really want to be here, guys. But like no one's listening to her. <laughs> She talks to Peter Gallagher. Here's a here's a thing that you shouldn't do in a coma movie. You shouldn't have people talking to the person in the coma for very long because no. that is not watchable. No, that's a bad thing. Um, yeah, the thing it does give her to do is uh, has a nice uh, a nice haircut and a pair of blue jeans. And his name is Bill Pullman. Um, my God, yeah, I was just gonna talk about Bill Pullman. Do right. you think? And there was like a moment in the production of this movie. It's like, well. <laughs> Peter Boyle got like a little bit more than we wanted him to for this. Like our, our ceiling's pretty high for like the leading or our ceiling's pretty low for the leading man. What do you got for me? And someone like spilled out of a dossier, a headshot of Bill Pullman. And they're like, yeah, fine. I think he weirdly like brings a lot to this part and like tries to convey like a guy deeply conflicted about like, <laughs> falling in love with his brother's fiance. What he renders is not like a convincing portrayal of like that set of emotions, but it's certainly an interesting portrayal of that set of emotions. It's interesting, but like, it's just, it's not what this movie needs. Right. This movie needs light. This movie needs like a, just a light touch. It needs some effortlessness. And Pullman is just so strange. There's the moment where like, so then there's like this other sort of like semi fart. This movie is full of like these like tiny farcical elements that like don't add up to a full farce where she, there's like the, the super in her building has this like Italian stereotype of a son who like dies in the first three episodes of the Sopranos. Um, and like he keeps like insisting that he's dating her. And there's like some confusion and then Bill Pullman's like, oh, so you're my brother's fiance, but you're also dating Joe Jr. What's that about? And he's like trying to describe like he saw her like lean in or something like that. Oh, that lean in, that lean in sequence is Bill horrible. Bill Pullman delivers the line, leaning involves wanting and accepting. It's just like, no, no, you're not Cary Grant. Like in like the like last third of a movie you can't get away with saying that bill pullman as you're i feel like that's in. also like a like a slogan for like a contemporary men's rights activist group yeah. or something so pullman doesn't super work even well, though pullman's not charming enough for this like he could be the president in like right. an action movie but he cannot be like your i don't want to end up with bill pullman right well, that's the... Uh, Sandra Bullock can do better than Bill Pullman. That's Sleepless in Seattle, right? She doesn't want to end up with Bill Pullman. That's the role he's designed to play. Yes. Either that or the president. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing how quickly they turn on you? Um, anyway, that's enough Independence Day lines. Um, not, the limit does not exist on that. Ugh. Um, so then back to the coma side of things. I think this movie only, you texted me this, it was a good point, that the fiancé needs to be a much bigger, more important character to keep the excitement up. But I would argue on the same note that if this movie's going to be good, Peter Gallagher has to wake up like 45 minutes earlier. The other fiancé in the movie kind of reminds me, like in the narrative construct way, of like the other woman that Dennis Quaid might marry in The Parent Trap. Oh, beautifully done, yes. And so, but like the funny part of that movie is the Lindsay Lohans like fucking her up. Yes. And like the war between them. So in a better this movie, Sandra Bullock is like, you know what? There isn't another fiance. Like I'm the fucking fiance. Like I'm going for it. Like yeah. we're going to be together. And Beautiful. then they have like a, there's some like, uh, you know, she puts bees in her hotel room or whatever. <laughs> the parent trap. A great rom-com farce. <laughs> Come yeah, on. Yeah, she like cuts her brake line. Yeah, puts her out on the raft with like honey and bears or something. I don't even remember. I'm just doing the ones from Rushmore. I don't know where you're, you're going to do like the plot of Deliverance. 
no, this actually happened in the low hand parent trap. Whatever. Um, oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, and the fact that it's not crazier gives you a little bit too much time to look at the Sandra character and be like, well, yeah. she's really sad, and this movie's kind of conservative, and like all she wants is to be rescued from this job, and like, how did she get here in the first place, and why does she have a cat, and why was she trying to pull that Christmas tree through the window of like a fourth four-story apartment building? Right. What What I hate most, I think, about this movie is the fact that you know, like... It's it's so like a byproduct of like a, a studio way of thinking. It's like we need a, a picture for women around the holidays. Yeah. And the message is going to be you don't need to change anything about the way you approach <laughs> the world. And happiness will fall into your lap by means outside anything you've done. That's a yes. And we'll get Turtle Top to direct it. That's What's all Turtle does? Top up to? I feel like... Uh, this really should be a layup bad good, but it's bad bad for some reason. For all the reasons we described. I think it almost certainly has to be a bad bad. Because I, I was I was uh, watching the 14th inning of the Yankees game on my phone for like most of my viewing of this movie. So yeah. it was boring. It's, it's boring. There's it some is, there's some interesting shots in it. I think like the way it was made is, is true? like fine. But the two big things on the production side that I hate about this movie um, are the fact the script's terrible. And the other <laughs> thing is the soundtrack is like somebody on like a very provincial key, like sitcom keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's scored with the same value as like your run of the mill, like seventh heaven, you know, Everwood episode. <laughs> That's just like using like tones and themes that don't like perfectly line up, but like close enough and like arranged for electric keyboard. You're right. You can see what it's, how it was made and what it was made for. And that sort of belies what could be like a likable movie. Yeah. Ugh. What do you have coming out this holiday season? Well, we're very excited about our John Turtletop picture uh, while you were sleeping. Yeah. We've got this new we've got this new stud on the lot. His name's Bill Pullman. <laughs> stud on the lot? Is that, <laughs> is that really uh is that new new Hollywood terminology? That felt like something like would be in like a Coen Brothers movie about like making movies in the nineteen fifties. Yeah. Hail's like uh It was all, sort of all, a Hail Caesar yeah, type. Yeah, Alden Aaron Reich's a new stud on the lot in that movie. Right. Hobie Doyle, I think the character's name is. Um <laughs> That was such a that's such a good scene though where he won't say um uh What if it were so simple? Yeah, what if it were What if it were Um Should we talk about reversal of fortune? I would li- absolutely love nothing more than to talk about this bizarre motion picture with which I'd had no contact yes! with. And uh, suddenly I was thrust into its 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 glory. Yes, indeed. Uh, the only thing I knew about it was that Jeremy Irons won Best Actor because I used to play the Best Actor Oscar Sporkle all the time. Yeah. Um, so I had it memorized, but I didn't know what it was about. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. So thank you, Nick, for this wonderful idea. This is a movie from 1990. Yep. Definitely a prestige play at the time. Right. Based on the on the Alan Dershowitz bestseller of the same name. Yes. And Alan Dershowitz, if you remember, is also one of the lawyers on OJ's dream team. That's right. That's right. And yeah. now he just like sits in a studio somewhere on CNN and they like turn to him. It's like, were Donald Trump Jr.'s uh, emails illegal? Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> and he's like, I guess, maybe. And then they like cut away. It's this guy. So, yeah, this is based on a real life case that Dershowitz worked about the uh, the English socialite and aristocrat Klaus von Bülow uh, and his wife Sonny von Bülow. Um, Klaus is played by Jeremy Irons. Sonny is played by Glenn Close, who is in a coma for the entire movie, except for the fact that she has five or six rather choice narrations. Um, oh yeah, it's voiceovers over her like her lifeless body. It's true. That's true. There are some uh, excruciating scenes in this. Yeah. In this movie, uh-huh. <laughs> one of them, most two, at least two of them are 
uh, with Glenn Close and her voiceovers. What we see in sunny narrated montage at the beginning is that Klaus appears very guilty of on two different occasions trying to kill his wife with injections of insulin. He is tried in Rhode Island and convicted. And then for an appeal, he looks up Alan Dershowitz, who is here played by uh, actor-activist Ron Silver. Um, I'm stealing Nick Kroll's joke from when How Did This Get Made? Talk about Time Cop. But Ron Silver. Um, yeah, and, and Klaus just peer, appears incredibly guilty, not only because of like the available information, but also because he is just an unnerving man who looks like the murderous butler anytime you've ever seen a murderous butler depicted in pop culture, except he's the one throwing the party. He would never be a butler. Um, right. Far too fine of breeding. Jeremy Irons' voice in this movie is unbelievable. unbelievable. <laughs> Just the vocal fry over and over again. Every time he walks into a room and he's like, Sonny, Sonny. <laughs> If we're already getting to Jeremy Irons, my favorite <laughs> Jeremy shouldn't. Irons line is, one can only speculate what happens behind a closed door. <laughs> it's yeah. such a brilliant line. Try to seem a little less guilty, Klaus. He defied public opinion. When I married Sonny, she was the most beautiful divorcee in the world and one of the wealthiest. You marry me for my money, then you demand to work. You're the prince of perversion flaunted the privileges of his wife's money. I'm involved with someone who falls beyond the parameters of our agreements. Well, that must be better for you than what you've had to put up with. Until his own family accused him of trying to kill her. Dershowitz's motivations are interesting, but he has sort of this hunger for fame, and he's also sort of like a sophist, like he will just argue the letter of the law, like day and night. Um, yeah. And so he takes, you know, he runs headlong into this case and it's a movie full of contrasts and a movie full of flashbacks. Um, yeah, it's like a John Grisham, like the firm kind of feel to it. It's like legal stuff and then like find a new evidence and there's like notes and things. It, it's reminiscent of the firm and of a few good men, but it does not have that popcorn element to it. Okay. Do you think it does? You think this has sort of a lot of pop value? I think this movie like moves along at a pretty good clip and has enough of like, <gasps> like what does the microphone mean? <laughs> like what's how's that gonna come into play? Like the DA has a an ace up his sleeve. Is it the mic? Is it the recording? Is it the is it the the tapes? Uh-huh. I thought it's got some. I think this movie has some moves in like the pop popcorn Hollywood like legal thriller way. Well, maybe I could introduce it to the way I introduced it to you over text, which is that to me, this movie seems like it should be a contemporary touchstone. It has some amazing performances, a great cast. It um, is ripped from the headlines. It has this real life story. It has a keen awareness of why we're still interested in things like People versus O.J. Simpson. Right. Like it's smart. And so, like, it, it you know, not only rips from the headlines, but it understands what's so appealing about that ripping. And yet, nobody talks about this movie. Nobody really, you know, nobody under, uh, very few people under 30, I should say, like, know this movie, probably. So, like, what is this movie missing? What's confusing or alienating about it? Yeah, and it's certainly not on the other side of the camera, too. Like, Barbette Schroeder did um, Single White Female, and, like, Oliver Stone produced this. Yep. I think that I'm going to make the argument that this movie gets a bad rap. I mean, does it get a bad rap though? It's like a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. It doesn't get a bad rap. People just don't talk about it. Well, that's what I'm saying. In like the in popular conversation about like movies like cuz this could easily be comped to like Gone Girl, right? Absolutely. This I'm is like I wrote down this is Bonfire of the Vanities meets Gone Girl. <laughs> like that. I mean, it's perfect, you know, and this movie not only has like some like legitimate, like straight faced, like goodness to it. It also has like some bizarre, campy, like nonsense scenes in it, like the tiger scene. Yeah. Like what? What does that even they're like speaking (laughs) in visual codes of like rich people so far beyond like what you and I can comprehend. It's just like she petted that tiger. I knew she was the one. (laughs) 
Glenn Close's role as Sonny the narrator to me is definitely akin to Gone. I have Gone Girl written down. Yeah. I mean, spoiler alert for real life: Sonny doesn't wake up. Right. So like, there's no comeback. There's no point where like, oh, she was unreliable, wasn't she? She just delivers this sort of like vindictive narration about her husband. And sometimes she talks about how, like, the lawyers are the devil's servants. And sometimes, you know, she talks she talks to the audience about why we enjoy these kinds of stories. But to me, it doesn't really add up to, like, a point of... Like, a coherent point of view within the story. And right. also, when we do flash back to Close and Irons, those scenes are so, like you said, alien, because we don't... I don't understand that lifestyle, but they're also so unpleasant. It's like somebody walking barefoot on the cold, freezing, you know, marble floor of that house watching those scenes, trying to find the bathroom. Right. The other thing that's weird about this movie, which I find kind of charming, but is like not a good thing about it, is the cinematography is horrible. It kind of has that. Did you see like shades of Ryan Murphy in the cinematography? Yes. Yeah. But like not in the same sort of like self-aware, you know, right. kind of way. Like the opening scene is a helicopter shot over uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah. And it like shows all these huge houses on the beach. But like the shot that is like there for you to see is the equivalent of someone handing me or chance like a 35 millimeter camera and, and a helicopter and been like, shoot like a helicopter shot for this thing. It's like not an artfully done. It's no. just competent at best. Yeah. It is at definition, a helicopter shot of Newport, Rhode Island, but it is not artful in any way. And right. then most of the scenes in this bedroom, which should feel like cavernous and like weird are like, sort of like mid-range like studio shots that don't like almost sitcom-y don't really move very much. Yeah, imagine like Paolo Sorrentino making this movie. Right. I feel like maybe they needed to add some things about like Sonny Von Bulo, make her more of a character because she's just like, they're just a couple miserable people when she's addicted to like five different substances. Right. This movie like is so in conversation with like a Paul Verhoeven doesn't have that insanity to it. Well, his, his like per, like his pervertedness. Yeah, this movie's going uh, insane, lying in bed with Glenn Close, not walking around <laughs> like smashing yeah. stuff. Jeremy Irons doing his like Jeremy Ironsist, and then Ron Silver just like leaning in hardcore to like this righteous man. Yeah, is makes for pretty captivating conversation. That's certainly the best part of the movie, in my opinion. Is Ron Silver giving Klaus a tour of the house where all the like law school, where all the associates are like working on the case. And like in comes this man who's like the Grim Reaper incarnate. Right. You know, and, and his like his posture, his diction, his manner, everything is so foreign to these like people who were like, you know, eating chow mein from a to go box and playing basketball in short shorts. Like, those right. are some amazing contrasts. I think what would have made it the movie kind of a new classic would have been if it could have just, you know, embellish, make Dershowitz more of a hero and then just do the whole thing in his POV, honestly. And don't, and sadly, don't cast Glenn Close. No, but just, Glenn Close is so good in this, though. Is she? Like, she's very, in, in, yes, in this woman who's like just trapped in her own body both before and after the coma. What do you like about her performance, though? I just found it I so think it's... deeply unpleasant, her and Jeremy Irons together. But you you feel for both of them, though. And that's what's sort of interesting about it is like both of them are sort of like just going through life in a very specific way for specific ends and like thinking they had an understanding about something that they didn't and realizing they don't know each other at all. Mm -hmm. And like, who's the victim in that situation? Because Sunny just wants to die. Like she didn't mean to frame her husband either time. She just wants to die. And she's just sort of, I guess the insinuation is that she's relishing if like, well, if she can't be dead, at least he's accused of killing me. <laughs> 
And so you feel for Glenn Close, and I think Glenn Close does that just miraculously. But then, like, once this guy's in, a sh- like, this shitty situation, it's like, well, you can't not feel for him as well. That's sort of the gamble of the movie. And if I think, if you feel for both of them, then I think the movie is a success, and I did feel for both of them. Okay. I don't know if I did. Every time I went to every time I went to bed with Klaus and Sonny, it was just a just a clammy, clammy night's sleep. I just ached to see the world through Alan's eyes again. I think this movie's I think this movie is very smart. I think the fact that it calls out and basically foreshadows like the O.J. Simpson trial in like some of the late narration, which is just like all you want is to have a look. Like you just wish you could have a glimpse, and then you have all these different people like. You the you the movie offering up their like conspiracy theory or their glimpse, but it's like you'll never know if it's the real one. And then Sonny's like, but of course you enjoy a circus as well. Like, this is the essence of why we like true crime. Like, this is a very smart movie, very early in the celebrity crime like compl- industry complex. That's a that's a deep one. That's a good one, Chance. Good Thank point. You. I appreciate that. Um, if we were on uh, Round the Horn, uh, somebody would have given you a point right there. <laughs> you, I'm sorry, do you call it apostrophe Round the Horn? <laughs> yeah, I definitely do. <laughs> okay. So all that said, though, I just cannot overcome the fact that like, I'm confused by this movie. I don't think it's very accessible when it's narrated by Glenn Close. Like, I, Her narration is trying to do a lot of different things, but like, I'm not quite sure what any of them are and how they relate to the idea of, like, is she the true storytelling agent here? Like, no, she's not. So her reliability doesn't matter that much. But so it's going to be a good bad for me. I clearly recognize there is a lot going on in this movie, a lot of, a lot of first-rate performing and uh, script writing, but good bad for me. Um, that chance is mistaken. Um, what are you calling it? The correct rating is good, good. I found it very entertaining. So I can't give it a second bad. Okay. So and good, I good thought it was pretty well crafted in the way that, uh, if you liked, uh, the OJ Simpson series on FX, the Ryan Murphy one, sure, you will love this. Oh, the coma pod. Oh, <laughs> I feel like I'm going into a coma pod. Uh, yeah. I feel like I need to get some dinner and watch Game of Thrones before I, uh, you know, before I flatline over here. Definitely. What else well, about so, comas, buddy? Anything? Um, it's interesting how much agency each movie here gives to. This is sort of the point I brought up at the beginning. The agency that the person in the coma gets in the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, in. Big sick because we see her on both ends of it. I would say a lot of agency, right. um, but it is ultimately Kumail's movie because he was awake. Um, whereas while you were sleeping, doesn't give a damn about Peter Gallagher. Really, oh, he is no part in this story um, other than being like the plot. And then in, yeah, Reversal of Fortune, it gave her, like, so much agency as to be, like, totally ridiculous. I agree. To its detriment. A little much agency. But I found it wildly entertaining. Find more episodes of Be Real at BeRealPodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at BeRealPod. We're also on Facebook, you know, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We ought to be there. Thank you so much again to Nick White for coming on the pod. A lovely guest. Um, Buy his book, please. Buddy, I'll talk to you next week. I can't wait for that moment. 